0: Much like building a home, if you're a homeowner, you have a vision of what you want your home to look like, but you don't know how to do the electrical or how to do the plumbing or how to do the drywall or how to hang the cabinets. You just know what you want it to look like. And if you focus on what the finish state is, other people can do the plans to make your vision come true or to build your home. It's the same thing.
1: Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing none of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, Do you ever feel like you have this idea of what you want your company, your business, your life, or whatever it is to look like and feel like, but it seemed like everyone else was on a different page and they just couldn't see it and you couldn't understand why, and and the reality was is that they weren't watching the same movie that you saw in your head. Well, this week's guest is Cameron Harold, and he is back for the third time, and boy, has he been busy since the last time we talked. Cameron has started a new podcast called Second in Command, and he wrote an excellent new book called Vivid Vision, a remarkable tool for aligning your business around a shared vision of the future. This is something we've talked with Cameron about in small chunks on previous episodes, but he has never had an entire book written about the material. So what is a vivid vision? Most entrepreneurs have an idea of what they want their company to look like. However, their employees, their partners, their vendors, they can't necessarily see the same vision, the movie in their head. But if you can pull all of those ideas out of your mind and write it down into a three to five page document that describes your business three years in the future with clarity, then everybody can get on board and everybody can be on the same page part of the same vision and see what you see and so here are some of the things that cameron says that we should consider when drafting our vivid vision first of all the ceo writes it and it's your second in command's job to reverse engineer it and make it come true then you talk about it in a finished state as if it were already done talk about the vision and share it with Everybody, the more people that know where you're going, the more people that will help you get there. Cameron also suggests that you get a professional copywriter to take your words and make them pop, put some emotion behind it. Similarly, you can get a graphic designer behind it and put some really remarkable images that make it feel Alive, And this is a forward-facing document that you can share with your customers, with your suppliers, your bankers, your employees, prospects, and get everybody, even those indirectly involved with what you're creating, involved in your vivid vision. Try creating an audio recording of your vivid vision so you can re-listen to it while doing other things to reinforce it. This is a very insightful interview, kind of a fun interview with Cameron you know, he's he's been on the show for three times at this point. And so I tried to ask him some new refreshed questions and he had some interesting answers. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And as usual, don't be a podcast junkie, bust out your pens and paper, take some notes and brace for impact. Cameron Harold, welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show, round three on the show. And and your uh, the first two interviews that we've conversations that we've had together have been some of my most favorite and some of my audience's most favorite. So, really excited to have you back on the show and hear what you are up to right now. Catch us up on what's happened since we last spoke. Hey, Mike, good to see you, buddy. Um, well,
0: my running's getting faster. I'm pretty happy <laughs> about that. I, I'm not <laughs> setting any land speed records, but I, I uh, set my for myself my best 10k in the last 15 years. So, I'm not going to tell you the time because it's embarrassing, but. <laughs> But it's good. So I think I'm I'm catching up from my marathon training a couple of years ago. I guess on the business side, I've launched a podcast. And I've, and I've listened to so many podcasts over the years where we interviewed the entrepreneurs and I wanted the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. So we launched what's called the Second in Command podcast to uh, interview the chief behind the chief. Mm-hmm. So we're interviewing the second in commands of all kinds of great companies. We've interviewed Harley from um, Shopify and... Tony from Contactually, and we've got the COO of Bumble we're interviewing her. We've got the COO from When Got Junk, Eric Church, just finished interviewing him. So that's kind of been fun, as listening to some of the stories of these second-in-commands.
1: That Yeah, and I have to say, I've listened to a few episodes, and I really enjoyed the, the episode with Harvey. I thought that was really fascinating. All of them have been fascinating because you're getting this different perspective that you don't hear. It's like this behind-the-scenes, kind of the people that make things happen, and and keep the CEOs and the other people going in the direction that they need to in order to fulfill the vision.
0: Yeah, it's been fun. Because even Brian and I, the founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I was the CEO there for seven years. He and I wrote for dinner recently. We were laughing about the old days. And he was like, remember you know, this? And I was like, dude, it was like, what about remember this? And we, we both have these like very true stories about how we, we built it, but from slightly different perspectives, right? And yeah. um, it's that yin and yang approach that I want to get the... I want to just uncover a bit more of. Yeah, fun.
1: totally. And that's really the, the genesis of, the, of what is now known as the Vivid Vision came from your days at 1-800 Got Junk, right?
0: It did. It was actually before 1-800 Got Junk. I was at a, um, a luncheon in Vancouver. There were 120 entrepreneurs that had invested in themselves. They were part of a group called the Entrepreneur Organization and kind of a big mastermind group. And we were invited to a lunch with a high-performance sports psychologist, and 16 of us showed up of the 120. And he talked to oh, us wow. about visualization and how athletes would use visualization to see themselves performing in the event. And the more they focused on the vision of themselves performing, the more they could act completely on instinct. And he taught us how to take that idea of the vivid vision and bring it into our company. So I brought it into a company called uh, Barter Business Exchange, gave you and we, It was a private currency similar to what Bitcoin is today. Um, we sold that company to a US public company for $64 million. And at the same time, Brian was building out 1-800-GOT-JUNK, very early stages of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And he did his vivid vision, what he called the painted picture at the time. Mm. And a couple of years later, Brian showed me his painted picture of what he wanted 1-800-GOT-JUNK to look like, or in fact, what he said it would look like. And it so inspired me that I love the vision of what he wanted to build. But I also saw all the pieces of the vivid vision that I knew I could build for him, and I knew he didn't have the skills to do because he'd never built franchise companies. I'd already built a couple of big franchise organizations, so it's interesting that just understanding at that very, very early stage when I'd already done a vivid vision, but then reading someone else's, I could reverse engineer it really quickly for him. And that hmm. gave me the power of of helping to kind of codify that.
1: I love that, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about. Creating partnerships within the vision and and communicating that and casting it to people. But I want to go back in time for a moment because when I was researching, you know, you've been on the show like two times already. This is your third time. And, you know, we've done the origin story thing. And I'm like, God, I want to find something new, something, you know, something interesting to talk to Cameron about. And I thought I had found something that was really new, which was the fact that you're. I thought your first foray into entrepreneurship was comic book arbitrage, which is really interesting. I have no idea what that is. But you just shared with me that actually, in fact, that was not your first foray into entrepreneurship.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you about comic book arbitrage but um, in a second. And that was probably my second, second or third business venture. I was 10 at that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but my first one, I was actually around 7 or 8 years old, living in Winnipeg, Canada. And I was selling coat hangers to the dry cleaners. Now, how does an eight-year-old go about selling coat hangers to the dry cleaners? I was taught at a very early age to spot opportunities, to look for ways to make money and to look for ways to buy low and sell high and look for things that other people wanted and see if I could serve them. So how does an eight-year-old kind of come up with this? Well, I saw I was in a dry cleaner with my mom one day. She was picking up our laundry. And there was a sign that said, we pay two cents per coat hanger. And I asked the guy who owned the dry cleaner what that meant. And he said, well, you bring your old coat hangers back and we pay you two cents for each of them. Kind of like returning a a pop bottle or a wine bottle would get you a a recycling fee. Mm. In the old days, they paid for coat hangers. I guess they were expensive to manufacture. So I thought that's interesting. And I I decided to go door to door in my neighborhood and ask people for all their old coat hangers. And my mom didn't know I was doing this, but I had a, a full closet filled with coat hangers down in the basement. And then I got on the telephone. This is back in the days when the phone had a really long extension cord, like a remote phone had a 40 foot extension cord on. (laughs) And um, I I pulled the phone from the living room down the hallway and into the bedroom and I closed the bedroom door. And I remember lying on the floor with the phone book in front of me and I was phoning all the dry cleaners in Winnipeg. And I was asking them how much they would pay me for coat hangers. And I got one guy to pay, he, he wanted to pay three cents a coat hanger which was better than the two that I saw on the sign, but I wanted him to pay me 4 cents per coat hanger and he wouldn't go there. So we agreed on 3.5 cents per coat hanger. <laughs> and I thought it was really funny that is, as an 8-year-old, I even understood that there was this fractional, you know, you can split the split the difference and, and I could negotiate for as much as I could, but I knew the deal wouldn't happen unless he was happy too. Like there were a lot of lessons from this. Hmm. My mom walked into the room and she said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm going to sell coat hangers. And she laughed and she said, but where are you going to get them from? My mom wasn't entrepreneurial like my dad was. And I started to cry and she realized that I'd done something wrong. Well, what I'd done was for a couple of days, I'd been telling her I was going outside to play with my friends. And what I'd been doing was going door to door in the neighborhood. And I knew I didn't have permission to do that. And when I opened up the closet door, <laughs> the closet door was filled almost to my waist with coat hangers just piled up. <laughs> so it was a short-lived business. She drove me to the dry cleaners and I think we did it once or twice. And then that was it. And I moved on. but. That was my first one.
1: Oh my gosh. What a crazy story. And in your mind, did you just see stacks of currency just piled up and like diving in, in the money?
0: Yeah, dude. Like I probably got like a couple dollars, man. And for like <laughs> 1972, a couple dollars was probably like, you know, $20 today. And yeah. Man, to an eight-year-old kid, you had an eight-year-old 20 bucks, man. And that is like a feeding frenzy at a grocery store with candy. So uh, <laughs>
1: So and I mean, then, how did you segue into comic book comic arbitrage. arbitrage? So, comic book arbitrage was the classic buy
0: low, sell high. So, back in the 70s, all the kids liked to read comic books. Today, not so much because we're digital and we've got our phones, and and comic books don't have that same thing. But back back in the day, you know, we only had two TV channels. There was comic books were the entertainment, and you would go to the corner store and you'd probably load up on comics for you know twenty five cents or thirty cents for a comic. So I started finding all these kids at our cottage that had stacks of comics, like all kids had 50 or 60 comics, and I would go and buy them from them for $0.02 to $0.05 per comic. Um, And then I would go and sell them in front of my cottage. I'd set up a card table out in front of the cottage where all the kids were were biking by, and I'd put signs up everywhere, and I would sell them for $0.10 per comic, which was cheaper than the store, but a lot more money than I'd spent. What happened was I found an area of the cottage where a lot of the poorer kids lived and and I went there and I bought comics from everybody and then I bought some in Sudbury where I lived and I brought them down to the cottage and then I set up where a bunch of the richer families had cottages and and the kids were paying for it. But then one of the kids saw me buying them at another area and he realized I was paying a lot less and he beat me up. And that was when I realized you never reveal like your manufacturing in China, you never tell people where you're manufacturing. (laughs) (laughs) But again, a really good lesson, right? Like you don't, your buyers want to know that they're getting something of value, but you know, if they're paying $79 for this, they can't find out that you're paying $3 to make it.
1: Right. Yeah, totally. hundred percent. So I learned the
0: lesson of buy low, sell high, but I yeah. also learned the lesson of just keep your cards close to your chest.
1: <laughs> now, segueing back into the vivid vision, which is what we're here to talk about in your new book, you know, you, you mentioned that the, the, the origin for you was going to this EO conference where only 16 of the 120 showed up and you had this really powerful experience. But what was it about it that resonated with you? What, what was the frustration that you were experiencing that this filled a gap for.
0: One of the things I recognized was that I always had this idea of what I wanted our company to look and feel like, and it felt like everyone else was on a different page. Um, it felt like I was like, God, why can't they have the same level of intuition as me? And why can't they just see it? And why can't they? Why don't they just get it? And why? Why aren't they as intuitive? Well, the reality was I was the only one who saw the movie, and I kind of thought about the movie The Sound of Music. If you've seen the movie, The Sound of Music, there's a very famous scene where they're having a picnic. But if you've never seen the movie, you have no idea where the picnic is. Mm -hmm. Now, the picnic is actually up in the Alps in Europe. And it's Julie Andrews playing guitar and the kids are singing and dancing and she's singing the song, The Hills Are Alive. But if you've never seen the movie, you might have thought the picnic was at a lake with kids playing baseball. So in the business world, it's the same way that most entrepreneurs have an idea of what they want their company to look like. Most business leaders in a business area, like the head of marketing, knows what they want their business area to look like. If they can pull all those ideas out of their mind and write it down so it becomes a three or four or five-page written document that describes clearly their business three years in the future, then you can kind of get everybody to see what you can see. And Mm -hmm. every sentence of that vivid vision becomes a future state. And you can figure out one or two projects to make each sentence come
1: true. It's almost like creating this kind of a thing is is your own therapy session i imagine yourself lying down on one of those like chaise lounge chairs and somebody talking to you and trying to draw this stuff out how do you for for busy doers accomplishers like step out to create enough space to do this work because it it is work it's not something that i was talking to somebody earlier this morning about the whole concept of maslow's hierarchy of needs from security all the way to self actualization and in each one of those levels a certain amount of work and effort is required before you can proceed to the next level sure. and it's the same thing with this with the vivid vision is and it requires deep work
0: yeah it requires very deep work and by the way i've actually used maslow's hierarchy of needs and codified a way for companies to use those five levels um, and look at company culture the same way that there's different levels of building a company culture. And if you don't have the base things taken care of, it doesn't matter about the whole like, oh, we're a great place to work. And we have all these aligned core values. People are like, fuck, I'm not being paid enough. Yeah. I don't, I don't have any good take-home pay. I don't have good health care benefits. Like, mm. forget about, well, it's a wonderful place to work. And we have massage rooms. They're like, dude, I can't pay my kids. Mm-hmm. And I don't have food. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question was, how do you how do you do this? And it is work. You First off, you get out of your office. Mm-hmm. You get out of your office, get out of the box. You go somewhere where you're inspired, somewhere around nature, like a park or the mountains or a lake. Go sit in your backyard in a hammock and take a notepad. No iPad, no laptops, no computers at all, no phone. Take a notepad and a couple of pens and go and start doing mind maps and visualizing all aspects of your company three years in the future without worrying about how it's going to come true. So you end up putting down three or four bullet points about marketing, three or four bullet points about operations, some about IT and finance and you know, engineering. You think about every business area of your org chart and describe it as if it's completed three years from now. And then you describe what the customers are saying about you, what the media is writing about you, what your employees are saying. You describe your interview processes, your meeting rhythms, the feel of the energy of the space. You talk about the apps you're using to run the company and you kind of describe it as if it's already come true without worrying about how you do it. And that's the key. The entrepreneur's job, much like building a home. If you're a homeowner, you have a vision of what you want your home to look like, mm-hmm. but you don't know how to do the electrical or how to do the plumbing or how to do the drywall or how to hang the cabinets. You just know what you want it to look like. Mm-hmm. And if you focus on what the finished state is, other people can do the plans to make your vision come true or to build your home. It's the same thing. So the entrepreneur comes back after four or five hours of just scribbling ideas and taking a break and relaxing and writing more ideas. You can do this just over a period of one day. And then you literally take all those rough notes and organize them by category and just start typing them up as a rough Word document. Then you can pass that off to a writer. I have some amazing writers that have written hundreds of these things that literally take it and make it pop off the page. Like a copywriter? Yeah, really good copywriters. Mm. I have a, a woman, Jen Hude, who's probably written a hundred of these now for companies all over the world. They can literally take your rough work and make it pop, and mm. it's so visceral. And then you add your normal design elements to it from your brand, and it feels like a really powerful part of your brand. Mm. We mm. can link to one. I've got a, a really good example of one that I wrote recently for the COO Alliance that I launched, but we launched now called the City Forums, and we're launching the COO Alliance in thirty cities over the next three years. And when people read it, they'll understand. Kind of this network that's being built only for second in commands and what it looks and feels like, if they think about their own company, they'll be more clear about my business after ten minutes or five minutes of reading it than they than most people are about their own business.
1: What elements of this have evolved, and we and I'd love to have that linked in the show notes for sure. But what elements of the vivid vision going from your your days, uh, sure. you know, back at uh, at one eight hundred got junk to To today, what elements are always true, and what elements have been removed or evolved?
0: Yeah, so the elements that are always true are the CEO writes it, not the team. It's it's really the entrepreneur has to decide what it looks like, and everybody else either says, "Yeah, I'm with you," or "No, I'll quit." That's what you want. The second thing is is that you talk about it in the finished state, so you write it as if it's already done. You don't say "we will have," you say "we have." You describe Mm -hmm. what you look like, not what we will look like. So you just Mm -hmm. write it in present tense, three years in the future. Mm -hmm. Another thing that stayed consistent is you only lean out three years. People have tried doing it for five years, 20 years. It's way too far out there for people to grasp their head around. Mm -hmm. Three years is the absolute perfect point. Mm -hmm. I was quite frustrated a couple of years ago because people were leaning out to the 2020. Oh, we have 2020 vision. I mean, fuck, your 2020 vision is four and a half years away. It's too far. So 2020 is three years, right? So that stayed consistent. The stuff that's really changed and I've now codified in the book, Vivid Vision, is getting a copywriter to really take your work and make it pop. That's Mm -hmm. been huge. Mm -hmm. Adding the graphic design elements to it to make it so that it's an outward-facing document you can share with customers, suppliers, bankers, lawyers, employees, prospects. Mm -hmm. That's been huge. Uh, And then every quarter, having a Word document version, and every quarter, your leadership team highlighting the sentences of the Vivid Vision that have come true in green, and highlight the sentences you're working on making come true in yellow. And mm-hmm. every quarter, the document kind of starts becoming more and more green. And that's been a very powerful tool for people to see it starting to come true, almost like watching a home. You know, it's like everyone wants the wolf stove with the red knobs and the cool cabinets, but we're putting in the foundation. Yeah. And then we're putting up the walls and then we're going to put in the plumbing. It takes a long time before it starts to look like a home, but you see it starting to come to fruition, right? Yeah. That's been powerful. One that's recently come to me and I'm actually just getting ready to do mine is to audio record my vivid visions so that I can re-listen to them while I'm driving. So Mm. I can have like a three or four minute audio of me reading my own vivid vision and I can listen to it or my team can listen to it. as just another input, right? You've got auditory, visual, and kinesthetic. So that's been one. And I'm going to... I'm going to work with some guys at Draw Shop to see if I can actually do a Draw Shop version of the Vivid Vision as well to see if I can really make it come to life even more.
1: Yeah, yeah, those are all incredibly powerful. And one of the things that they all of those things share are they all involve outside partners or people in different roles that touch your Vivid Vision in some way. And you mentioned it early on that you and Brian he had this painted picture, but then you saw how you could build upon that in a different way. So let's talk about like how you collaborate within the building of the Vivid Vision. If it, if the CEO is the one that's drafting it or you're the individual drafting it, how to bring in partners in a strategic way?
0: Yeah. So the, the first part is that the CEO really crafts the Vivid Vision, not the COO. The CEO, really, like even when Brian was drafting the 2000... So I was handed the 2001 when I joined. Then he gave me the 2003 Vivid Vision and then the 2006 Vivid Vision. My job was to reverse engineer them and make them come true. Mm-hmm. So my job was to buy into his vision. His job was to buy into my plan to make his vision come true. Mm-hmm. So my job was really to take it as the second in command was to take the Vivid Vision, get the team aligned, recruit people that had the skills to make parts of it come true. And figure out the order of operations to build it all, much like building a home. The mm-hmm. last thing you want to do is have, "Hey, let's hang the cabinets!" It's like, fuck, we haven't even got the floors put in.
2: Yeah, <laughs>
0: and then cabinets on a pole in the middle of the ground. Like, let's get the foundation built, right? Yeah, no, yeah. Well, stove. Well, so there's a little bit of communication around that, and then there's kind of the cult of leadership that is powerful. Is the more that the CEO can communicate the vivid vision and talk to people about the vivid vision and share the vivid vision. That stuff becomes, you know, really critical on getting people to buy into it. And the more people that know where you're going, the more they'll help you get there.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call When is the right time to begin to tease it out to get people to buy in? And how do you eliminate those people that don't want to buy in?
0: Yeah. So what we do first is we get the people to read it. We pull all of our employees together into the same boardroom over a Zoom call on video and we get everyone a physical copy of it that they can read through at the same time. We actually have the group read it out loud. So one person kind of reading a few sentences and then the next person continuing. Mm. And as it's being read out loud, people circle their favorite words or favorite phrases, the ones that really inspire them. After we've read through the full document, we have people read out the stuff they were most inspired by. And all we're looking for is a few areas that are really inspiring to each person. The second thing we're looking for is to look for the people that are really not connecting with the Vivid Vision. You know, they're rolling their eyes. Um, we're looking for the ones that are kind of the negative cultural cancers in the making mm-hmm. before they become stage three or stage four. Yeah. We, we want to get them out of the organization early. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a, had a client years ago where I, I went into a strategic planning meeting. He brought me on site for a day. We took all of his employees off site to a day to run their strategic planning. And then I ran a training session for 85 of them. And during the session, at the end of the session, we rolled out the vivid vision for his company. And Mm -hmm. Dean read it out loud to the whole company. Every employee was there. And at the end, he said, about 85% of you love what you just heard. And he said, 15% of you hate it. And he said, today is probably the right day for the 15% of you to quit. (laughs) And then he showed a slide on the the projector and it said, tomorrow, when you go to the office, here's our new office address. Today, when we were off-site, I had a moving company come. They've packed up our entire company. And tomorrow, you get to unpack and set up your new desks. And then he showed photos. Now, right? You're going yeah, like, wow. I'm like, wow. wow. yeah. <laughs> I'm like excited and vibrating. This is fucking awesome. And who is this guy, right? There were 15% of the people that thought that was the worst thing in the world. They couldn't handle it. They didn't want to do it. And they did quit. 15% of the company did quit. A year and a half later, Dean's company ranked as the number two company in British Columbia to work for. And the other client that ranked number one was called Nurse Next Door. And i had been coaching them for a year as well. Wow. So this idea of alignment is you write the vivid vision in a way that it magnetizes people towards it. Mm-hmm. But if it attracts, it also has to push some people away as well. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. If you try to create something that everyone loves, no one actually cares. Yeah. You know, one of the best examples of a physical product I've seen that did this is the Apple iPhone when it launched 11 years ago, which is insane that it's been 11 years. Um, but when it came out in 2007, do you remember when the iPhone came out? What were people saying it was missing?
1: Keyboard. Keyboard,
0: right? Everyone was up in arms. How could you release something like to compete with a BlackBerry and there's no keyboard? It's going to flop. And then you heard the first people person typing on it. Like, yeah, yeah. like, whoa, let me see. And then you tried it and you're like, shit, this works. And it yeah. was like, you need one now. Yeah. Game over for BlackBerry. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't care about trying to be all things to all people. They wanted to be all everything to the people who challenged the status quo and, and saw something that was different. And it was an insanely great product. And they pissed a bunch of people off. And those people argued online. And that's what got everyone to love it or hate it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that really, that was the game-changing move for Apple computers, period. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that, that's coming to mind too is that is that oftentimes people mix up vision and mission.
0: Well, you know, in the business school world, all we were ever taught, or even in normal school, was to have a mission statement. Mm-hmm. You, know, you get all your employees together, everybody puts their favorite words on a whiteboard, you vote on all your words, you end up with like seven words, you mash them up into one sentence, and that's your mission statement. Right. Go, go team. <laughs> um, but everybody walks out of that meeting thinking it's hokey, the CEO doesn't like it, the, the employees feel it's kind of weak. And that was all we had. Mm-hmm. And the entrepreneur always knew something was missing because mm-hmm. they had this bigger picture, but they didn't know how to codify it. That, mm-hmm. that was the whole purpose for writing Vivid Vision.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I love about the visualization process, especially as it relates to this, the whole process within sports, but you can apply it to business as you've done, is incorporating adversity into that as well and challenges. And I, I interviewed a while, a long time ago, a year ago a guy named Dr. Jim Affermau, who is the peak performance coach for the San Francisco Giants and a bunch of Olympic athletes. And he's kind of like a Michael Gervais type guy from Finding Mastery. And one of the things he coaches people on is, is integrating in their visualization process a piece of adversity, but not just leaving it there, but seeing themselves overcome and respond to that adversity. And succeed in the midst of that challenge and that obstacle, and I think that's a really powerful opportunity for entrepreneurs, for CEOs, for leaders to get out of the safe zone. You know, we play it so safe a lot of times. We hold things so close, Mm -hmm. and this is the one place that we get to go and just let it ride and let it rip.
0: Well, most most business owners don't. Lean out into the future and, like you said, take a risk. They don't think big enough, right? They just simply they play it a little bit too safe. If you think about the Tesla Model S for a second, like why was the Model S a seven seat option? Why did why did they put a seven seat option in
1: Model S? I think if I've if I've read it, uh, I think and I and I and I think you mentioned it in your book that it was because of his family, right?
0: Yeah, he's got five boys. He's got twins and triplets. Yeah. Right. So if you've got a, a family with five kids and you're going to build a car, you probably want the car that you're going to build and spend like a whole bunch of time designing to fit your family,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: right? Mm-hmm. So you, that's what it was. That was the whole purpose. It also had to be super fast and super sleek because he used to own a McLaren F1, which is a 1.4 million dollar car. Um, it had to be priced at a level that the normal person could come in, but it had to have those insanely great, ludicrous options because that's just the way Elon rolls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was it. And then yeah. he, said, he said, this is the vision for what I'm building. Who's crazy enough to want to help me build it? And people either lined up or ran away. Investors and suppliers and, and even customers. And when I bought mine, I literally bought my Tesla online without ever test driving one. And the minute I got into it, I was like, this is the best decision I've ever made in a
1: car. I remember when you and I had lunch at the, the country club there in, uh, in Scottsdale. And I think it was shortly after you had gotten it, and you were playing around with the summit button. Yeah. And I remember you had hit, you were like, "Hey, Mike, check this out." And it started to back up, but it didn't stop. And it, but it had all these sensors, and it started to back up into this empty spot behind you, and it pulled within like an inch of this other vehicle. Remember that? And, you, yeah. and we, we both thought it was gonna crash into the car. it doesn't do it. It doesn't do it. It was amazing. It was amazing. It came close, but it it didn't do it. I'm wondering, since we're talking about these crazy, big, hairy, audacious goals, as Jim Collins put it, and you mentioned in the book, what's the most absurd thing that you've ever incorporated into your own vivid vision that's just so crazy that people that don't understand you or don't understand I've got two. Uh,
0: One one is my BHAG, and this is publicly stated, is to replace mission statements with vivid visions worldwide. Because vision statements or mission statements don't work. Mm -hmm. And businesses have been starving for this piece. BHAGs work, core values work, core purpose works, but the other fourth corner of the jigsaw puzzle is the vivid vision. And so that's my BHAG is to replace them. And then I just put a crazy goal in place last night. and I told one of my kids today... I was at a big event last night, the launch of the Bentley Continental GT. And when I sat in it, I was like, fuck me. Like, it's just, like, it's, it's too beautiful. It's perfect. It's absolutely like the sexiest car I've ever been in. It just feels amazing and in every single sense. And in my vivid vision for the COO Alliance City Forums, I said we would have 100 City Forums with 1,000 members by, uh, by 2020, by December 31st, 2020. So I told my son last night, when we, I didn't say yes, I said, when we hit that goal, I am buying this car, and here is the color. And nice. uh, he's like, "Why don't you buy it now?" I'm like, "No, I'm not going to get Uh But that's that's a pretty big vision, right? To go after you know from zero to a thousand members in something, and and it's not a small leap. It's mm-hmm. a ten dollar program for people investing in their second command. So, mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. you know, one of the things you you did yesterday at, be, before you were going into that event is you were as you were sitting and waiting for your buddy. You did a Facebook Live talking about your own feelings and emotions of insecurity about going into these events. And I'm thinking to myself, gosh, this, you know, I'm watching this as we're getting ready to talk today that after you do these vivid visions, a lot of times we can put them down and we can say, I'm not worthy of that.
0: Yeah. Or you feel like a fraud. You feel like how, how could I, the worthy one is one people struggle with. The other one is like, how am I possibly going to do this? Well, we have to stop, stop worrying about, you know, how pies, right? We don't get stuck in these how pies. Yeah. What we have to worry about is, is who can do this for us? Mm. Who can we outsource it to? Who can we hire? Who can we ask for help? Who can we rip off and duplicate from? Like, there's amazing stuff that's been developed that we can just borrow and, and you know, grow. Most mm. ideas are already in place. Like, I'm going to take the best ideas from the best programs, and that's how I'm going to accelerate the growth of the CO Alliance City Forums. Because I've studied EO and I've studied YPO and I've studied Vistage and I've studied Genius Network, and I've studied franchising and multi-level marketing. And I'm taking all the best aspects of those and I'm getting rid of all the friction, all the stuff that are the barriers, so that it can just go. And everybody has to do really well at it. It's going to be amazing for the CEOs. It's going to be amazing for the chairs. They got to make a lot of money at it. And so do we. And then it scales. And I think most entrepreneurs get stuck in that. When I was sitting outside last night. I I decided to do a little Facebook Live because I wanted to talk about my insecurities of walking into these big events and how I'm always nervous going in. And I'd rather stand on stage in front of a thousand than go to a cocktail party. I'm even getting tight chested talking about it now. And I thought about it for a second. I went... Maybe I shouldn't post it because I'm supposed to be this leader. I'm supposed to be this guru who's got his shit together. I'm supposed to be like, I'm starting to realize people are looking up to me way more than I thought they were I'm getting mm-hmm. stuff in the airports now. And I'm being booked for big stages. I didn't realize I was having the impact I'm having. And I guess I'm this small town kid trapped in an adult body. <laughs> um, so I just I almost wasn't gonna do it because I thought it might hurt my brand to do it. And I was like, no, I'm just gonna do it for two reasons. One, I thought it might help somebody who knows that somebody who maybe is a brand is scared too. And then the other one was it was a good way to kill ten minutes before I had to walk into this damn event. And I thought <laughs> if I could kill ten minutes while I was waiting for my friend who was showing up, uh it would make me hyperventilate less. So I thought if I could share with somebody what I was worried with, it would help me get through it and it would help them too.
1: Yeah, I, I gotta say, I was I was blown away. Nice. And, and I think that uh, vulnerability is strength. And and it just shows, it just confirms how strong of a leader you really are. And it gives people the ability to step into their own crap that they're dealing with and and acknowledge that it doesn't mean that they're any less successful. It doesn't mean that they're any less worthy. It's just that they're human.
0: Well, and, and we're all, I think we're all 13 year olds or 16 year olds trapped in adult bodies. Mm-hmm. And none of us are getting out of this alive. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I heard a quote recently that we're all just walking each other home. Yeah. And I think there's something really beautiful about that to realize that. And, and also this is just what we do to make money. Like this is, this isn't, this isn't us like work doesn't, it shouldn't define us. It's just right. what we do to make some cash. Like, mm-hmm. so yeah, I'm a guy, and I and I try, and I fail, and I struggle, and I and I laugh, and I succeed, and I cry, and I'm scared, and and I'm confident, and I'm in, like I'm all of it, right? And I think, and I'm not going to go on Facebook and go here. I'm being vulnerable. Let me be vulnerable. I just decided to post it, mm-hmm.
2: and so mm-hmm. yeah, and
0: there, I know. Wasn't, there wasn't a game involved. Like I'm not trying to monetize it or do anything. I just wanted to. It was just real. Yeah, I was just being real because I also want to go. Hey, here's me doing this successful thing. Well. Here's
1: me struggling. I think that the one biggest gap that exists in the, in the world right now in the entrepreneurial space is this intimacy, right? Mm -hmm. It's this, it's this most of our experiences with people are digital today. And so there's this, even though we're talking, you know, and I see your face and you see mine and we can see body language. There's still this, we're not together like in the same room. And so there's, there's an element of intimacy that, that is lost. And when you're, Crushing it when you're writing books and all of these things. It's not about gamifying it or turning into some opportunity. It's just about like, hey, you know, I'm a real human being too, and I'm. This is something I'm struggling with, and I really think that it was a really powerful thing, and I think that it applies to the vivid vision process too. Because people write this stuff down, and then they're like, you know, to bring it back full circle, they they're asking how instead of who, and I think that that's incredibly powerful. That that that's the answer that you focus on who. Needs to be involved in who has done this?
0: Well, and so this is actually something that I think we were bred or taught incorrectly by the school system. Now, at its time, so I'll give some some credit to the school system. So I went through school, you know, I graduated from university 30 years ago. So I'm a bit of an old guy now, right? 30 years ago, I graduated from school. And when I graduated from school, you know, no one in my residence or university dorms owned computers. I didn't get my first personal computer until a year after i graduated from college. And my, my boss at work was like, why do you need one? Like, it was that, like, what the hell would you have a computer for? So in those days, you had to be able to memorize everything. You had to be... Because you couldn't go to the library to look it up in a book. There was no internet. So you had to memorize it all. So there was a lot of value to being able to memorize things and, and know all the answers. So you, So you did have to know how, right? Mm-hmm. But I knew intuitively that all the answers were in the textbook anyway. So why bother studying it? As long as I knew they were in there. And if I had a question, I knew how to find it. So I always figured out how to find the answers quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think it was like early stage Google. Like I just knew quickly how to find an answer or how to find someone who knew the answer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I would ask a lot of friends for how they would do things and they would tell me. And that's how I would get through my courses faster. Mm. I think now if we fast forward, what we should be teaching kids is not to memorize anything. To, to quickly find the answers on on Google, find like what's this? What's the uh, the formula for a sphere? Why are they fucking memorizing? Go on your laptop. Who can find it quickly? Share it with your friends. Who can all get the right answer? Good. Hey, wow, we did that in seven minutes. Let's see if we can do it in four. Right. right. What we should be doing is teaching everyone to think quickly, collaborate as a team, share information, access resources, versus memorize. And in the vivid vision world, it's the same thing. It's why I invest in all the masterminds I'm in. Like I'm in. I spent $25,000 a year to be in the Genius Network. I spent $10,000 a year to go to Mastermind Talks. I spent $10,000 a year to go to the main TED conference for 5 days. I spent $22,000 a year to be in Dan Sullivan's Strategic Coach Program for 10x. So that's forty seven. dollars I went to Baby Bathwater. That's ten. dollars So that's thirty. That's $77,000 that I invested in the last 12 months in my own skills not, not including the books and podcasts that I listen to to grow. The reason I join all these networks and masterminds is to be around other people who know the answers. So mm-hmm. I don't have to learn it mm-hmm. all. I just have to know the people to go, how would you
1: do this? Mm. That's powerful. That's that's really powerful.
0: And it's why you and I originally even met. Like, True. I met with you because I remember I was even thinking about doing a podcast. I wanted to learn a little bit about it. I'm
1: like, who's this Mike Flynn dude? And That's yeah. why we connected. I was going right. to pick your brain. Yeah, and, and here we are. Here we are today.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, as we uh, as we begin to wrap up the conversation, and this has been super insightful, I want to make sure people know exactly where to go to get the book, the vision where they can learn about the COO Alliance and the city forums for anybody who is interested in potentially becoming a chairperson or a member.
0: Sure. Yeah. So all, all four of my books, Double Double, Meeting Suck. Vivid Vision, and the Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs that I co-authored with Hal Elrod. Those are all available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. Uh, The main website for the COO Alliance is just COOalliance.com. And if you look at the regional tab,
1: it has all the information on the city forums there as well. And you just... Hired your first chairperson, chairwoman. I think right. We've
0: actually, we've actually you now got three chairs. Three, you know, okay. Signed. We've got three more that are looking at it this week. That are very high level coaches, and we've just either have just signed or are just signing uh, a deal with South Africa to open up the city forums in South Africa as well. Wow. So wow. yeah, we know the vision is really strong, and as soon as we started sharing it with people, have, if you're if you're a coach or a consultant or a small business owner, you could be a perfect chair. And it's a way that these people are making fifty to seventy thousand just by running an event six
1: days a year. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. In fact, you could
0: be you could be a really good city forum chair in your market.
1: Oh, really? Okay. Well, we'll talk about it. And I accept and receive that. By the way, that you that you said that about me. That that that's I'm honored that you said that. You know, I've asked you the three questions that I that I ask every guest before, so I came up with some fresh questions for you. The the first is. If someone were to write a biography about the life and times of Cameron Harold, what is the most surprising things readers would learn? I'm very sensitive.
0: I'm very feeling. I'm very emotional. I'm very caring of others. That would be one. Another one is that probably that I I don't have a lot of confidence, that I'm very insecure about things and, and very nervous and I worry. And I don't put on a game face. I think maybe I'm bipolar that way or by something that I I can play kind of both sides. And that um, I'm pretty fucking good skier still at 52 years old. I can do do double blocks and blocks. And um, I don't like the moguls anymore with my back. But you take me down any steep chutes and powder on... Any tree runs. I was down at Powder Mountain at Baby Bathwater earlier this year, and I was like right in the alders, man. I was skiing it with guys who were 20 years younger than I was. And I wasn't right there, but I was pretty freaking close. And I will go back and ski with them when I'm
1: 72 and they're 52. When you are on the mountain, do you have any insecurities on the mountain, or do you just like get into a flow state?
0: No, I do have insecurities now because I'm—I've uh, insecurities about my ability because I've fallen a few times in the last number of years. I destroyed my shoulder. I've got a huge metal plate and screws in my shoulder from a big fall uh, eight years ago, and then I have an MCL injury in my right knee from a heli skiing trip, and then I also broke my arm walking carrying my skis. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm realizing that my vision isn't as good, and my response time isn't as good as when I used to ski race thirty years ago, and I think I've—I've I've, I've kind of throttled it back in terms of my speed now a little bit. Unless I'm in the powder, I'll go fast in powder. But you
1: have that self-awareness, which is important.
0: Yeah, the, the big skiing accident eight years ago where I, I destroyed my shoulder, and ended up in surgery. My, my humerus is in 48 places. So yeah, it was That's, the x-rays were scary. Wow. I'll see, if I can, I'll see if I can find the x-rays. And if I can, I'll send them. You can put those in the show notes.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll put those in the show notes for sure. Now, the last question is, what is... Uh, what is something absurd that you love doing? Something that's
0: absurd that I love doing. I, I kind of
1: like experimenting with psychedelics. I
0: did a micro dose of LSD yesterday on a Thursday morning and it was like a really fun 10 hour. But I, I, you know, you read about, you know, some pretty serious business leaders like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and like they're doing so I love doing mushrooms once in a while. I, like doing once in a while. <laughs>
1: I did not expect that answer, but you know, that that's what, that's what you get. That's what you get when you ask these questions. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Cameron, Harold, thank you so much for joining us for round three of the Impact Entrepreneur Show. It's been a privilege having you on. You're welcome, Mike. See you later. Bye. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting FlynnWealthStrategies.com the Lot Marketing Group, and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.